as you read the book of Revelation, and I, and I hope that you're reading along with us this semester, you, you really have to keep your eyes open because everything happens so fast. Um, that's why I really do love listening to it uh, because it, it's such a story. Um, but everything happens so fast, like locations change within, within a verse, um, characters are introduced and then all of a sudden they disappear and now you're on to other characters. The setting is always evolving. Things completely start over and then you go along and then it kind of restarts again. You're swept from heaven to earth to heaven to earth. Like it's constantly moving. It's shifting. It's really, really, really fast, right? Um, if John were recording this today, I'm convinced he would win a, win a Pulitzer Prize for storytelling. Although I think that would also be cheating. But he would be up for something because it's an amazing story. Um, I love how, how uh, one of the commentaries I've been reading, Rick Phillips, who many of you know, um, he wrote a great commentary on Revelation. And he said it's almost like uh, the angels in heaven are putting on a play for John. And I've been thinking about that all semester because it is like that. It's like the story is, is evolving and moving along. It's really sort of like a musical. Um, in fact... I listen to music most of the time when I'm writing these things, and I have a playlist that I've been building. You can add to it if you're interested in telling me some songs I should add. But it's just, song, it's just revelation-based songs, and it's been really helping me kind of get into this text as we go along. Um, you get swept up in this story. I don't do very creative message titles much anymore because I'm, I'm just getting old, I guess. But, um, but I did subtitle this one at least, uh, not on your handout, <laughs> just in my own notes. And it's this. The Cosmic War, the musical. That's sort of what this chapter is all about. Um, so I want to read this, uh, this little act of the musical. This is sort of the 12th act where we learn about a, a dragon who wants to eat a baby. So buckle up. And in fact, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. Since it is a musical, do a little dancing up. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I, I, we're going to actually listen to this text. I, I've got someone else reading this, and this is from that, that app I've told you about, Streetlights, which I love. This is a ministry out of Chicago that puts Scripture on top of some beats because they're, they're helping uh, inner-city children in Chicago learn the Bible. And we're going to listen to Streetlights, Revelation chapter 12. All right, this is, this is quite a text, right? When you, when you read through this... Um, I think for some of you, if you're honest, you may sort of read this and kind of just dismiss it. Like, this is a little much. <laughs> like, it's been, okay, we're getting into some metaphors, but like a red dragon falling from the sky, a, a um, you know, a woman flying on the wings of an eagle, like what is going on here? A friend of mine joked, is this the Bible or is this HBO? Because it's it, it just sort of this like epic presentation, right? Um, but what we actually see in this story, and I really, like, my, my hope for us over these next few minutes is that what we see in this story is a deeper, it's a deeper story that makes sense of our individual stories. Really believe that. I think there's something in this text that actually makes sense of the world that we live in and maybe some of the daily experiences uh, that you have. Um, in a lot of ways, this vision, it's seems extremely unique, but it's also nothing new. There's nothing new in this part of Revelation that we haven't seen in Scripture before. In fact, this is a culmination passage of what we see from Genesis to Jude, which is the book just before this one. God is continuing a story. 
And this part of the story is what's underneath all the other stories. So some of my illustrations from this semester deserve to be revisited at times, in my opinion. Um, and this is one I want to use for the second time this semester. No worries if you haven't heard it before. I'm using it a different way. Um, the very first week, I told you uh, a story about the, um, the National Galleries of Scotland who made that amazing discovery of the Vincent van Gogh uh, 1885 painting head of a peasant woman when they scanned this painting when they were doing some observations on it. They went, ran it through an x-ray and what they discovered on the reverse side of the painting that they had never seen was a self-portrait of Van Gogh. You remember the story? One of the things that we talked about uh, with that particular story is that underneath, we hope, underneath all the imagery that we find in Revelation, essentially what we're going to see as we continue to study it is a, there's a self-portrait here. Jesus is revealing himself. We get to know more of his character. And I hope that's been true for you uh, this semester. I hope you know Jesus more um, because of this book. But here's the way I want to use this image now a separate way. Um, isn't it often the case in, really this applies to like various artistic mediums, that there is, there's more than meets the eye, right? There's more than meets the eye up until this x-ray scan, experts had only seen the head of this peasant woman in one certain light. But then there was an unseen reality just underneath the thing that was visible the whole time. An unseen reality that they had not previously witnessed that then began to change the way they saw the painting. What we learn in Revelation 12 is that there is an unseen reality there's an unseen reality just underneath the visible experiences in our daily lives. The veil between heaven and earth in some ways is a lot thinner than we think. There's a spiritual dimension and there's a spiritual reality that is just underneath, outside of, behind the physical reality of our experiences. That's what this passage is about, is the unseen reality. And so it's going to be helpful to see it. It's going to be helpful to uncover what's going on. And so I do want to kind of treat it like a play because that's how it's presented. And I want to go through, we're going to talk about the cast of characters. We're going to talk about um, how the story ends. And then we're going to talk about the conflict within the story. So let's talk about the characters first. You heard there were primarily three characters. The first was this woman who appears as a sign in verse one. She's clothed with the sun and standing on the moon. I love a good mixing of metaphors, all within a few words. She is uh, clothed in the sun and standing on a moon. I mean, how can you even picture that? But this is apocalyptic language, right? It's an unveiling, it's artistic, and she has these crown of 12 stars, and she's basically, it's graphic. I don't know if you called how graphic it is. She's basically in stirrups waiting to give birth. She's in agony. She's in pain. Talk about a vision. So who is this woman? Uh, your first assumption may be Eve, um, the mother of all living. And I, I think that probably is true to a degree. Or maybe your mind goes to Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. And I think that's a good guess too. But the more I've studied this, the more I, I, th I think what, what we're seeing and what John is seeing is that uh, it's bigger than just one person. I think this woman is representative of something bigger than just one individual. Throughout scripture, the people of God are actually described as a woman. You get this in a lot of places in scripture. Genesis 37 has very similar imagery uh, to this when Joseph has a dream. 
Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 60 have very similar imagery. I think even Paul uses woman language to describe the church. Um, Galatians 4, Ephesians 5, and other places. So, yes, Eve, and yes, Mary, and we would say the woman also represents everyone who came in between them, the people of God. And, if we follow the logic, it also represents the people of God who came after Mary. And so, the woman represents the people of God. In short, the woman, if you are a Christian, is actually you. Which is really helpful as you look at this text now and some of the things that's going to happen to this woman. These are things that God is saying is true of you if you are a Christian. Okay, so who's the male child? Sunday school answer works here. Anyone want to guess? Yep, it's Jesus. Okay, good. This one is Jesus. And here's why we know this. Because verse 5, verse 5 says, She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. The first part of that verse is a direct quote from Psalm 2. This is an important messianic psalm showing Israel that from her will come this Messiah. Out of her will come one who will essentially rescue her who will deliver her, who will rule over the nations and bring salvation to the people of God. And here in Revelation, we see that this child comes from this woman and he takes his place as the ruler of nations. Amazingly, in that one verse, we could just talk about this one verse the whole night. We're not going to. But we have the birth of Christ all the way to his ascension. Did you see it? She gives birth and he rises to God. Like you have the entire ministry of Jesus in just a few words. It's amazing. Okay, that's all the characters. Oh, nope, there's one more. It's a dragon. So, let's talk about the dragon. Verse 3 again. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Amen. Um, There's a lot there, right? Fortunately for us, uh, the identity of this dragon is given to us. Now, John does help us out from time to time, right? There's so much imagery in Revelation, and every now and then he's like, and this means that. And so we're going to pay attention where he says that. And he says it. In verse um, 9, he says, this is the ancient serpent, who is often called the devil or Satan. We have these three characters. There's an unseen spiritual reality just beyond our physical one. And what we see in this passage is this like full 4K HD 3D, I don't know if that's a thing, but this display of what's really going on. There's an enemy of God's son and an enemy of God's people who wants to steal and kill and destroy them. He is after blood. That's why he's red. He's powerful. He has seven heads and ten horns. It's a symbolic language. He's powerful. He has some sense of authoritative rule to a degree. This is why he has the seven diadems, at least for a time. He's a bad, bad dude. This is the dragon. 
But the bad news for the dragon and the good news for us um, is we have a sort of a spoiler alert in the middle of this passage about how this war is going to end. Now, this is unique storytelling, even for a musical, right? We're going to fast forward right now to the conclusion, like to see how the whole thing ends before we get into the conflict to see how it actually plays out. So here's the conclusion. Verses 7 through 9. The, the war arose, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I love the words of, of Martin Luther's great hymn where he said, For lo, his doom is sure. No doubt he had Revelation 12 in mind when he wrote A Mighty Fortress. His doom is sure. The cosmic war ends with this sort of epic throwdown. Literally, it's a throwdown. That word, that phrase is used six times in this passage. The devil is thrown down. The Hebrew word for that is the same word for like bounce. <laughs> he was bounced out of heaven. The war ends with Satan failing and falling and ultimately losing the great battle. So, you know, a question, no doubt, would be like, when? When did this happen? Or when will this happen? Is this in the past? Um, is this in the future? Is this in the present? You know, my answer to that will loosely be, yeah. Yep. It's those things. But there is sort of a definitive moment where Satan was ultimately defeated. We're going to go back a little bit for a minute. This really, the story begins in Genesis 3. Um, all the way back to Genesis 3, when we first meet the evil one, this unseen spiritual reality enters into this physical reality with Adam and Eve. Comes in the form of a serpent in the garden, not as a dragon, but as a serpent. You may remember the story. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell for a lie of a better life apart from God. Did God really say? And they fell for a lie for a life apart from God from this serpent, crafty liar. And he entered into the story, and they fell. They did the thing God said not to do, and sin entered into the story and entered into this world, and that's where the battle really begins. But there was a promise for God, from God in the middle of that passage. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's actually when God curses the serpent. You'll find this in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. He talked about how there will be enmity, there will be strife, there will be a war between the serpent and the woman, Eve. And, what did he say? Between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, two lines are established in Genesis 3. Those who follow the words of the Lord and those who do not. And he's calling this the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he promises, this is what God says, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. And the reader is left scratching their head saying, who is he? We get a new mention of, uh, of a he in Genesis 3. Who is this he? Theologians will say that this is what they call the proto-evangelium, which is the first gospel. It's the first mention of the gospel. Who is the he? Well, he is the seed of the woman, a male child, who will come 
and crush the evil one. Do you see how this story from Genesis to Revelation is unfolding? So when was Satan defeated? Ultimately, when Jesus came. And Satan knew this. Think about the incarnation of Christ. Satan was trying to kill him then. Think about Herod and the Christmas stories. Throughout his ministry, what is Jesus doing? He's battling against evil forces. He's battling against the evil one, the temptation even in the wilderness. Demon possessions left and right. Jesus is constantly doing battle with evil throughout his ministry. And then, of course, there's the cross. This moment where the dragon surely thought he won for a time. Until three days later, his defeat became absolutely certain. Because that male child became a man who died on the cross for the very people of God. And that man walked out of the grave victorious. And he says, there is no one who has authority over me not even Satan himself. Satan lost forever in that moment, definitively. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that very same moment, what else happened? Your salvation. These two go hand in hand. Jesus accomplished for you defeat against the enemy and your salvation, your relationship with God, restored on this cross. As Paul says in Ephesians, he simultaneously disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by dying on the cross for your sins. So the message here is this. This is the message. Jesus wins. Jesus always wins. That's the message of Revelation 12. The dragon loses. That's the ending. It is promise. It's the conclusion. It's the denouement. It is the final, final finale. It has already happened. It is finished. That's the good news. That's the conclusion. So, you may be asking, Reed, if that's the conclusion, why is there a third point? Good question. Because this musical's different. Even though we know how the story ends, sometimes it feels like we're still in the middle of the battle, doesn't it? It's because we are. And now we need to talk about the conflict that is in the in-between. Because this is where you and I live. I want to look back at verse 13 and 14. The dragon saw, listen to what he does. The dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth and he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. This idea of eagle, this is God's language of of preserving and caring for his people in the Old Testament to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. I know that sounds nuts. We may get into some of the, the time, times, half a time language as we go on, but essentially I, I take that to mean, like I'm talking about last week, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So it's symbolic language of between these two comings. Okay. If you're in Christ, you need to know that Jesus wins. And you also need to know that you have a target on your back. Do you know that? If you were in Christ, you need to know that you were hated. That the evil one is really, really against you. That he actually does want to steal, kill, and destroy you. 
Because if Satan lost to his ultimate enemy, Jesus, who would he go after next? Well, he would go after those Jesus loves most. This is people. He goes after the woman. He goes after the church. And again, if you are in Christ, that means he goes after you. See, in 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Same word, seed, back to Genesis 3. The offspring of those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you know that you have an enemy? And your enemy is real. And sometimes maybe you sense that that's true, and sometimes you would rather live in the physical realities and, and pretend that it's, it's not. All right, I told you I was going to revisit two illustrations. Um, here's the second one. First was about Van Gogh. There's an unseen reality just underneath the visible. Now I want to revisit um, what has become my current favorite TV show, which is Alone. The show's amazing. Um, these survival experts on this show are out in the wilderness trying to outlast the other contestants. They are, in all senses of the word, alone. Now, don't picture like Michael Scott on the Survivor Man episode where he fashions his coat into a tourniquet or whatever he does, and then he fashions it back into a coat. It's not that. These are like real deal survivalists. And they're out there, and it's just them on their own with their 10 items that they brought and their cameras filming them. They have no idea how long they'll, they'll be there. Um, they can always tap out. They have an emergency radio with them at all times if they need it. If they call, they're done. That's the way they get off the island, get off the show, and they're done. But the one who endures receives $500,000, which to me does not seem like very much money to live by yourself eating, I don't know, whatever. Um, they eat these birds I've never heard of and squirrels. For a hundred days, I don't. Five hundred thousand is not going to get me there. But one of the first things that happens with these contestants, as soon as they sort of get into it, is they they begin to identify their vulnerabilities. They start to figure out where they are weak and where there might be some real struggles. So they have to take in the land around them. Right. This is where we started our series. They have to take in the land around them. They're looking for animal tracks to see what, what other animals are around them. Consider the weather. They survey potential food sources to figure out, um, they try to figure out which predators want to destroy them. Like, it's, it's always grizzly bears um, or wolverines. Again, didn't know those were real until this show. But they, they're, they're trying to take in, they have to figure out very quickly who their enemy is and how to protect themselves against their inevitable attacks and vulnerabilities. If you're a follower of Jesus, um, do, you know, do you know who your enemy is? And I say this because sometimes we think our enemy is, is somebody that it's not. Sometimes we think our enemy is like another person. Mm -mm. Sometimes we think our enemy, even as Christians, even as a part of a ministry or a church, is like another group of believers. We've got it way wrong. Or we think it's another religion. That's our enemy. No, of course not. There's a real enemy. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus also said, the devil wants to 
still kill and destroy. Peter picks up this language in one of his letters where he writes, he gives this warning, he says, be alert, be sober-minded, for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Do you know who your enemy is? Revelation 12 helps us to know our enemy and to understand his strategy. We don't have a lot of time to kind of go into this, but I want to just give you two very basic strategies of the enemy and what we can do to combat them. There's nothing new here. It's the same stuff he did with Eve. It's the same stuff he did with Jesus in the wilderness. Two typical strategies that I have no doubt, and I really wrestled with this this week, I have no doubt these are the exact same things he's doing to you right now and to me. What are they? Number one, he is an accuser. He is an accuser. It's in his name. Satan is just the Hebrew word for accuser or adversary. One of the best pictures we get of this is, again, one of my favorite passages. Some of you have heard me teach on this a lot. Zechariah chapter 3, where you have Joshua, the high priest, who is standing before the court of God. And there's a prosecutor in the room. And it's presented as Satan. And Joshua is standing before the court of God, and he's supposed to be wearing royal um, sacramental robes because he's the high priest, but instead his robes are dirty. And the accuser is saying, look how dirty you are. You're filthy. What's wrong with you? Judge, dismiss him. He, he can't be in this court. He's accusing Joshua, showing how filthy he is. That's what he does. This is what he does with you. I believe it. He accuses you, your conscience. He wants you to see how awful you are all of the time without any hope. If they only knew, if they only knew who you really are, you're the worst. No one wants to be your friend. You better not open up. You you better not tell them. No one wants to be with you. No one wants to give you a job. No one wants to marry you. No one wants to have kids with you. You'll never be happy. You're ugly and you're stupid. Does any of that ring true? You'll never get over that sin. There's no way God could really love somebody like you. This is what he does. All the time. He accuses you over and over and over. And that goes hand in hand with his second strategy, which is this. He's also a liar. He's a liar. We see in verse 15, I'm not going to read it, but the serpent poured water out of his mouth. Do you see that? Like a river, and it sweeps to sweep the woman away. His words are trying to trap her and drown her. This goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? Did God really say? These are the first words we get from Satan in Scripture. Did God really say? Same thing he did with Jesus. Same thing he does with you. Why would you believe this old, ancient text? How could you possibly think that this has anything to do with your life? Why would you give up time, give up sleep, to go to a church on a Sunday morning? Like, why would you waste? You're busy. 
Why would you waste your time reading that? What a waste. Why would you not just do whatever you want to do? Like, why not sleep around? It's college. Like, why would you not do that? It doesn't matter what you're doing if nobody else is around. If it's it's just you in your room, like, what does that matter? Or he goes the other way. And some of you have already gone this way tonight, which is, aren't you glad that you don't sleep around like those other people? Aren't you glad that you don't go and get drunk like those people on this campus? Aren't you glad that you actually don't really need that much help in general because your sins, like, they aren't that bad? You can do most of this stuff on your own. Do you know your enemy? I mean, we're just scratching the surface. Like, what is Satan doing right now? He is accusing you and he's lying to you and to me. This goes back to a question. I've heard this posed before, and it kind of like messed with me this week, which is simply this question. If you are deceived or being deceived, how do you know it? Like, how do you fight that? If you're being deceived, how do you know? Well, we have two schemes for his two strategies, and they're both in this text. What we have is the blood of Christ and we have the truth of Christ. Look again at verses 10 through 12. And I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. There really is some strategy to fight against the evil one. When Satan tells you that you're worthless trash, no one could love you, or you're just the biggest screw up, or that you don't need God or you don't need anyone else, you simply can claim the blood of Christ. I don't know if that feels practical, and I hope to work this out with you in the last couple of minutes here. But what you have, if you are a Christian, you have forgiveness in Jesus. The blood of Christ means Jesus actually died for every one of your sins, past, present, future. It is finished. Jesus meant it when he said it. It is finished. He came out of the grave. He conquered evil. He conquered Satan, and he laid down his life for your sin. There is no accusation that stands in the court of God. None. In that Joshua text, in that Zechariah chapter 3, do you know what God did in that courtroom that day? He didn't rebuke Joshua. He rebuked Satan. He said, get out of my court. This one's with me. And he clothed him in white robes. It's an amazing passage. This is what Jesus has done for you. Do you know the only way you can fight is with the blood of Jesus? It's not with your strategies. It's not with many different things that we try. God uses a lot of different things, but the only fight you have is the blood of Christ because that's where you have real forgiveness and you have real power. He's the one who wins. We don't win on our own. 
But the also the other thing that God uses is the word of their testimony. In other words, you don't just have the blood of Christ that covers your sins, but you have the words of Christ, which tell you who you really are. That you are a beloved child of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Romans 8 wins, and there is therefore now no separation for those who are in Christ. It's the bookends of that amazing passage. Let's work this out practically. You know the evil one is crafty. How do you know if you're deceived? I got a phone call a couple of years ago from, um, from a credit card company. And they said, hey, we want to run this transaction by you. Were you in Walmart buying $3.17 worth of something? I was like, I don't, probably. And we started looking into it, and it was like another Walmart in another state, but it was like $3 and something. And I was like, and I asked them, why are you calling me about a $3 charge? <laughs> And they said, because there's sort of a, the current scheme right now among thieves is that they don't, if they get credit card information, they don't go and make the big purchases right away. They start with the small ones to make sure everything's working. So it's $3 here and there. And then it's $25. And then it's $2,500. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Thank you. And give me a new credit card. So it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but at first it goes unnoticed, right? They want to test you. This is not a new trend. This is an old one. This is an old strategy. In fact, it's ancient. If you're deceived, how do you know it? Well, it starts small. It starts small every time, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds until he has you right where he wants you, and that you are in friendships, and you're in a relationship that is taking you so far away from Jesus. Or you have so devoted your time to everything but him that you have no room for him. Or that, you know, maybe you've adjusted some, like, you don't use the bad words anymore, but, you know, these other things in my life, God doesn't really care about, and we kind of, like, move things around. It's, it builds, and it builds, and it builds. So how do you actually fight? Well, you have to fight with the blood of Christ and the truth of Christ. In other words, you need to be reminded of the gospel all the time, desperately, and I do too. We need desperately to be reminded of the truths of the gospel all of the time. You need people in your life who are gonna do this for you. You need people checking in with you. You need friends who are gonna ask you the hard questions. We can't always identify the vulnerabilities on our own. We need others to say, here's where I see that you are not trusting in Jesus. Here's where I see that you really aren't, you don't care about what scripture says about these things. Or do, are we willing to let people in like that? We need the word. We need to endure to not give up, to not push the checkout button. Get me off this island button when it gets hard. But instead, we need to be reminded that we have everything that we need to fight because the battle is already won. Jesus always wins. Therefore, rejoice, verse 12 says, O heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short, and it is. Endure. 
endure by the blood of the Lamb and by the words of Jesus. Would you pray with me?